you're listening to Rock Bottom Radio, broadcasting from deep in the turf net zone. Here's your host, Randy Wilson. Okay, it's the Halloween radio show for 2022. Hello, this is RW at Rock Bottom Radio, coming directly to you from Rock Bottom Country Club and sponsored by Dryject, the greatest greens management tool ever invented. With me today is Ludell. Howdy, y'all. And Buford is here, too. Hey, everybody. Mom will be here in a few minutes. She's busy chasing down some golf stealers that played all day after only paying for nine holes. And let's see, uh, Cletus won't be here today. He's gone missing. But he usually does that around Halloween since he's superstitious. It's bad luck to be superstitious. Did you hear what you just said? Uh, catch me outside. How about that? Okay. Anyway, it's October, and we're already hearing scary stuff like this could be an early winter with early frosts, early hard freezes, early snowfalls. So I thought we should discuss which scary story we should have for Halloween story time. Anybody got any suggestions? I do. That high-technology Japanese restroom y'all put in on the back nine is downright terrifying. No, it's not. It's the epitome of modern AI customer service. It remembers your name, warms the seat for you, and offers dietary suggestions. I don't care. It's creepy. Makes gagging noises when I sit down. It can be a mite sarcastic. How about the black dog of Mr. Valley? That's a scary one. Okay, I can tell that one. Am I too late to vote on which story? No, Mama, you're just in time. I vote for the time we had to exercise the spirit of the evil goose from that golf pro. That's a good one for Halloween. Remember when Buddy put up a skeleton scarecrow over his garden and he put servo motors in it so it could wave its arms and turn its head? Yeah, and all them school kids freaked out. And the next thing, a priest shows up to exercise Buddy's scarecrow. He wasn't a priest. He was a Baptist preacher. You know, he had that AM radio show over there in Winder. It's a shame he had that heart attack when the scarecrow turned and looked at him. Yeah, Buddy ain't never got over that one. I kind of wanted to tell about the haunted jukebox in the grand ballroom at Palvadero. Why don't you just tell all of them? Start with the Great Northern Invasion. Okay, it's story time. Once upon a time, we had a border invasion that caused a real problem for golf course superintendents. The kind of problem that's never gone away. We called it the Great Northern Invasion. This was long before the current dust-up on the southern border. And it was far worse than the problem we have right now on our western border. What with all the folks escaping from California. This great northern invasion came down from Canada. And I'm not talking about Canadian humans, because on the whole, those folks are polite and sensible. Except for the ones who voted for that rather illogical fellow. Although we don't have much room to talk about electing the wrong kind of leaders, but anyhow. It began in the 80s with a wave of Canadian geese. At first, they were wildlife, which we welcomed for the positive imagery wildlife provides for golf. But it wasn't long before they transitioned into a different status altogether, that of invasive species. They ate the poa anua, and then after processing it, these unwelcome visitors deposited the poa seeds all over the place, even the greens. Gift-wrapped in moist compost, the poa seeds, the ones not stuck to golfers' shoes or stuck to rollers on reel mowers or the body parts of anyone with a string trimmer, the poa seeds had a head start on germinating. I hate them winged vermins. Can't even walk nowhere anymore without wearing goose leavings. 
Now, how come we can shoot down incoming scud missiles with our Patriot ABM system, but we can't stop a few goose? I bet I could knock down a few with my country boy version of an anti-missile system. I use a 12-gauge with a full choke, well, if they'd let us. What with food shortages, we should just eat them geese. My great-uncle Nadell used to say, don't never eat animals that live by the water. Why? Because the meat is so oily. See, riparian animals are waterproof on account of all that oil in their skin. I remember Uncle Nadell saying, a man ought not to eat a otter. And he's right, because I ate one once, it's impossible to keep down. You'd have thought I had syrup of Ipecac as an aperitif. But I recall a story by Charles Dickens, you know, where he got visited by the Christmas ghost, and after that he bought a Christmas goose for Bob Cratchit. I don't know about that, but maybe them English gooses are different than Canadian. Oh, they got to be eatable, because elsewise folks wouldn't say things like, your goose is cooked. Uncle Nadell caught a baby goose one time, named it Trudeau, and fashioned a leash for it. He's so proud walking it around till one day it flew away, completely breaking the trust established twixt man and goose. Did Trudeau ever come back? Yeah, like he always do. See, it had learned to eat the food left out by the extremist homeowners living alongside the 8th fairway. How do we get rid of them evil birds? We can't. The folks living alongside the fairways think geese are some kind of desirable turf decoration. Truth is, what with so many extremists buying golf course lots, and not because they play golf or they want manicured perfection out their picture glass window or even for the property values. Y'all know a fairway lot is often increased in value by three times. No, they buy golf lots because they want to complain. The extremists like to get control of an HOA, especially one on a golf course, because that's heaven for an extremist. Why is that? Because golf-centric country clubs provide an endless supply of stuff to complain about, you know, to get offended about. They'll even drag a lawyer in every so often and sue for improper customer service protocol. You know, failure to kneel and kiss the ring. I thought you was gonna say... You didn't answer my question. How'd we shoo them birds off? Well, whereas and therefore we used to discourage geese with a shotgun, now the killing of geese is verboten. So the use of PSYOP anti-geese systems has proliferated. Sirens, fake gunshots, fake coyotes, laser beams, special dogs, flying drones, boat drones... I've even heard about submarine drones, but nothing works like old-fashioned shooting them. Shoot them and they'll move away to a neighboring golf course, especially one with homeowners skilled in harassing golf course management. You ain't never gonna get to the point, are ye? Up until the incident, forever engraved upon our memories as the Goose Slayer, we thought the invasion of the Canadian geese would be just a minor annoyance, but somehow... The government got involved and things went all sideways forever and ever, amen. The Goose Slayer appeared one afternoon at a golf course I was intimately familiar with when the golf pro was playing the back nine with his buddies. The golf pro was one of those guys destined to always be a club bro. He grew up in the pro shop from a tender age and because he managed to avoid things like picking the range, washing carts, or the military, it was obvious that his destiny was that of a head pro. His name was Fauntleroy, but we called him Double L. Fauntleroy wore a modified beetle haircut with short bangs, kind of like that character in Dumb and Dumber, and his innocent cuteness act assured L.L. Fauntleroy of an endless supply of golf lessons, his primary target clientele being older women. I wouldn't have admitted it then, but Double L irritated me to no end, especially when in front of golfers. He would proclaim his willingness to help us on Mondays when the course was closed. He actually showed up once and helped us feed the chipper for several minutes till he decided he had a meeting. 
Right after I handed him a hickory sapling to feed the chipper and it whipped him like a stubborn mule. Anyway, back to the day of the incident. It was late October in 1992 and Double L was on number 16 green trying to line up a putt that was worth well over 35 cents on a press. A large male goose was sitting in Fauntleroy's line and in a burst of testosterone Double L attempted to shoo the great bird away. Now keep in mind our exposure to Canadian geese at this time was minimal and it was thought they would react like a pigeon or at worst a wet chicken. During the shooing process Fauntleroy prodded the goose with the grip of his putter and what happened next became legend. The goose monster rose up like a science fiction pterodactyl and flew directly into Double L's cute little haircut causing a backward tumble that would have surely been a viral event had it happened today. Double L regained his feet and his composure and began to dust off his eyes-odd turtleneck. Everybody has their priorities. Consumed by this task, he did not see the enraged goose circling around in a tight turn, much like a Sopwith camel in a 1917 dogfight. The next contact involved a fairly stout impact of webbed feet to the back of Double L's head, causing a pretty good thumping noise. There was some screaming followed by hysterical laughter from Fauntleroy's playing partners. The screaming was said to contain several expletives like gosh dog it and gadzooks because LL was skilled at alternate cussing and then the phrase he bit me he bit me took over. At this point double L's golf buddies were unable to help Fauntleroy. They were paralyzed with severe laughing trauma which presents itself by fetal position seizures and the inability to open one's eyes. Before double L could recover from the skull thump Goose Monster returned to deliver the kill shot. Fauntleroy backpedaled while unsheathing his accushionate bullseye blade. In his best impression of Errol Flynn's swashbuckling swordsmanship, Double L flailed, parried, and thrusted upon the goose, using both hands like an English longsword from the medieval era. Because that style of combat was originally designed to kill dragons, the accushionate proved itself more than worthy in goose battle. Moments later, the goose was dead. The cheering echoed all over the golf course and the bragging, strutting, and end zone dancing that followed was commensurate with the epic deed. They carried on like that until a crew worker discovered the dead body and made off with it, but not before explaining that goose murder was a $5,000 fine plus life in prison. Double L quickly made a deal with a crew worker who was offered a new set of clubs. The dead body disappeared and would have never been spoken about again, except for what happened a few days later on Halloween. Wanted posters appeared, stapled to the starter shack, inside the cart barn on a telephone pole in the parking lot, and on the front gate. The poster read, Wanted, Dead or Alive, The Goose Slayer. It had a crude, hand-drawn picture that included a sickeningly cute smile, plus some short bangs on the forehead. It went on to say, Be on the lookout for a serial goose killer. Then it included a reward at the bottom of the poster promising a free ride on an F-10 fairway mower for information leading to the arrest, incarceration, and butt-kicking of the dastardly criminal involved in the slaying of the helpless goose. The posters quickly vanished, but Fauntleroy had to endure several years of folks goose-honking at him from across fairways on the practice range and especially when he played 16 green. As the years went by, the goose invasion wasn't funny anymore. Superintendents tried various methods to reduce the goose problem, but these Canadians were a tenacious bunch. They adapted and shifted tactics faster than golf could. In 2001, Buddy accidentally defeathered a goose with a remote control helicopter, but eventually he invented a system that worked. Buddy discovered a radio frequency that affected the brain waves of birds, and when he activated it, 
After jacking up the voltage, it worked extremely well on the bird brains, thereby driving the geese away from the golf course. Unfortunately, it failed to discriminate between species and seriously affected any bird brains within range, up to and including golfers, the previously mentioned golf course homeowners, nearby politicians of the extremist variety, and anybody with more than four years of college. Buddy was forced to shut down his device, and the geese came back. In the words of Obi-Wan, they were easily frightened, but they returned in greater numbers. Nowadays, homeowners, animal rights folks, climate alarmists, and bureau rats are all dead set against shooting these winged, poop-smearing beasties, so I feel obligated to reveal a secret technique to my harried brethren. There was a golf course I know of that had a resident population of 153 invaders from Canada, and the POA infestation that appeared shortly after one of these Canadians made a deposit on a green was so overwhelming that the choice was either to shut down the golf course altogether or go tactical on them. Trying to lure coyotes in to disturb the nest proved futile as coyotes are known for being uncooperative. So Homer, the owner of that course, took the advice of a brilliant superintendent still held captive behind the lines in California, and soon Homer had acquired a powerful, silenced pellet rifle sporting a third-generation night vision scope. The invaders packed up and moved away at first light. Nobody wanted the goose meat because no one would eat the oily little um, beast, and it's rumored that the bodies were buried deep in the compost pile. But the scary part is Homer suffered greatly from that incident. It made him kind of um, jumpy. He couldn't sleep anymore. At midnight, he could hear geese honking outside his back door, and he would find evidence of geese on his porch. Eventually, Homer wandered the course at night, randomly firing his shotgun into the air while screaming, Red rum, red rum, sometimes not wearing a stitch of clothing. Well, unless you count crossed bandoliers full of ammo and flip-flops. Then they haul him off to the nuthouse. Nah, he was already working at a golf course. Now tell the black dog story. Okay. Back in 75 on this really great golf course called Mystery Valley, where Dad was trying to fix it up and get it to the top 50 list, which he did, the family lived in a house alongside number 7 Fairway, and it was great, except for one thing. There was this ugly black dog with one floppy ear, teeth growing sideways, and eyeballs that faced different directions, and it had a tendency to yowl all night like a mental patient. The black dog tormented Dad every night. In addition to the yowling, it attracted other dogs of the insane variety, and together they formed a sort of demonic dog chorus, yipping and howling and singing off-key. But that's not the worst part. They turned our very own golf course dog, Kayak, into one of them. It was like a dog zombie outbreak. After about a year of this, Dad destabilized and began building elaborate traps to capture the devil black dog. He constructed a trap door on Kayak's doghouse and captured the black dog one night. He then called animal control, and in the process of transferring the black dog from the doghouse to the dog catcher truck, the animal control folks misjudged the evil dog, and in a momentary lapse of attention, the devil hound escaped. Dad was furious. So the next time he trapped the black dog, he had the golf course crew load the entire doghouse into his truck, and he personally took it to animal control six miles away just inside I-285, the perimeter highway. Dad then went downtown to a meeting, and when he got back to the golf course, there sat the black dog with that same goofy evil expression, one floppy ear and eyeballs staring out into space and at the ground simultaneously. The next time the dog choir tuned up, Dad came out shooting. Now, in the military, Dad coached a rifle team to the national championship, so he was pretty competent at rifle shooting. But somehow he missed. The very next night, 
He had devil dog in his sights and decided to shoot right through the window screen, and the rifle misfired. After several more dog chorus performances, Dad finally shot the beast and buried it in the forest with the help of my brother Mike, sworn to secrecy, because he was one of the only witnesses to this insanity. Twenty years later, I was offered the superintendent job at Mystery Valley, and the deal included the house along the 7th fairway. When I went to check out the course, I drove by the house, and there sat a black dog with one floppy ear, eyeballs askance, and a horrible broken-tooth grin. I U-turned my truck around that very instant and sped off back to my much safer course, located in a high-crime zone with floods six foot deep and a golf pro intent on having me terminated. Really, terminated. But it was better than living with the black devil hound in Mr. Valley. That's a pretty good golf horror story. Tell the jukebox story, and not the edited cupcake version your agent made you put in the book. Tell the real one. It was 1969, the same year as Woodstock and Charles Manson and the anti-war riots and the Zodiac Killer. Times were strange and we were at a strange golf course. It was way out in what I thought was desert, nine miles from the nearest town and the only neighbors were farms, cotton farms. We took over this nearly abandoned course that had no play to speak of, no visible turf, unless you could get the irrigation system to work. Then you had big circles of instant grass and weeds and vampire jackrabbits. I had to do the first of many clubhouse cleanups of my career along with my first pool fix-up, pumping out the slimy green sludge that accumulated over the winter, sanding, painting, and refilling it. Nothing happened the entire summer. Very few golfers, no pool visitors, nothing, except for the haunted jukebox in the grand ballroom. The clubhouse was an enormous old wooden structure built in 1932, and for reasons I never determined, it had a grand ballroom the size of a basketball gym. Against one wall was a jukebox that came to life without any prompting from humans, and, and it played loudly a Peggy Lee song entitled, Is That All There Is? The old clubhouse was full of dark hallways, empty rooms, odd staircases, nooks and crannies, and although I never found them, I was sure it had secret passages. I would be working alone, gathering up empty beer cans or sweeping off the pool deck when the jukebox would suddenly start playing and Peggy Lee would bell her away for a while. I immediately ran at full speed into the ballroom to see who was pranking me. I always unplugged it and carried out a thorough search, intent on finding whoever was doing this, but I never found anyone. It typically happened when I was alone on the course. Dad was usually off at a golf tournament, taking my mother and brother with him. My standing orders were to lock up after both golfers, our only members, had finished play for the day. Halloween of 69 was a lonely one. No trick-or-treaters out that far, and Dad was off playing an event in some place called Livermore, so I nervously waited for the last golfer to come in. He left his cart in the parking lot, so I went to retrieve it, and while I was doing that, two old folks drove up in an antique car. It was black and swoopy, like... Cruella DeVille's car and they got out and headed for the staircase. They were wearing black and swoopy clothes and the old man's suit was really baggy. The old lady had on a black ball gown. I told them we were clothes but they weren't having it. They said they just wanted a quick drink because they were celebrating some kind of anniversary. I explained we had no bartender but they said I would do fine and they didn't care that I was only 14. Using dad's guidebook to bartending because you know dad was a teetotaler so he had to have a recipe for each drink. Using his guidebook, I fixed the drinks they wanted, and then I stood by the door to usher them out. They refused, saying they always had a drink and then a dance in the ballroom because they were part of the group that founded Palvadero, and against my warnings, they went into the ballroom. At this point, I considered mixing a drink for myself, especially when I heard Peggy Lee start singing again. 
I had to fight the urge to run outside since they might steal all the liquor or empty the cash register of the entire $8 take for the day. But after a couple of songs from the big band days, you know, Artie Shaw, Glenn Miller, the old folks came out, tipped me a silver dollar, and roared off in their car. I locked up, went across the parking lot to our house, and spent Halloween by myself, cradling my 22 rifle. A few weeks later, after telling that story to both members, my mother, my brother, and a hunter who came walking by, one of the nearby farmers came in for a Coors. I told him the story of the old couple in the swoopy car, and he said, rather matter-of-factly, that I had encountered the Emersons. I said, well, they seem nice. That's when the farmer told me the Emersons had been dead for 20 years or more, killed in a car crash on Halloween, after getting too drunk at the big Halloween gala here at the club. He said after that, the club never held another big Halloween gala. When I didn't say anything in reply, the old farmer told me not to worry. Other folks had seen the Emersons, too. Said he saw him his own self a few years back out on the highway at night, driving fast and acting like fools. I decided the whole thing was an elaborate prank. After all, it was 1969. It was crazy times. Unless you compare it with today, because, you know, 69 seems kind of gentle in comparison. I often thought that incident might have been the impetus behind the series of elaborate pranks I played on golf course workers, golf pros, and night watermen for the next 40 years. Looking back, it had to be a prank, but I just never could be sure. You've been listening to Rock Bottom Radio, broadcasting from deep in the turf net zone. Subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher for future episodes. 